0: Welcome. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my better half, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we trade suggestions for graduate students to get the most out of their graduate programs and help them progress toward their career ahead. We also mention Agatha Christie, the McDonald's Thinking Chair, Warm Lemon Lime Snapple, Hitting Ideas with a Shovel, Moving the Goal Posts, a plethora of Bacchanalian hedonistic Machiavellianism, mentoring by Minova, and badging. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, Patrick, I've got something to share with you. This is really, really cool. You ready? Okay, I am. All right, so there's this thing called CareerCast. It's online, so it must be legit. (laughs) And every every year, uh, CareerCast will list out jobs and and rank them from the best job all the way down to the worst job that they're willing to rank and they it's they use data from the bureau of labor statistics and it's data that involves the job environment the income the outlook for the career the stress level so they they put it all in a magical cocktail and do a ranking that up until this point had meant nothing but (laughs) this year this year the ranking is awesome and spot on. So I want to tell you, I'm just going to tell you the top three jobs. All right. Okay. Can you, are you, are you, are you I sitting? Go for I'm still Brace I'm yourself. waiting
1: with Bell's up.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Whatever <laughs> that it looks like. That yeah, I, don't, I don't even know. Um, okay. Top job out of all the jobs rated based on the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is data scientist. Number two, statistician. Number three, University professor. That's right, baby. The trifecta. <laughs> trifecta.
1: That is, that is the trifecta.
0: It is. The poll is put out by a series of uh, data scientists, statisticians, who are university professors. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's correct.
1: With a one hundred, a one hundred percent return rate and an n of three. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. It's reliable. The uh, how cool is that though, right?
1: That is awesome. I am curious. What were the bottom 3?
0: Well, I you know I I don't know if we really want to denigrate anybody, but Well, uh, we never want to, but it happens anyway. It does. All right, sir, are you ready for the bottom 3? The number 1 worst job is taxi driver. All right. Okay. Number 2 worst job is a logging worker. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But that's better than taxi driver. It's better than
0: taxi driver. And the number three worst job is a newspaper reporter. Number five is, uh, and this is important for you, enlisted military personnel. Because you flirted with that. I did.
1: But then decided to go to Boulder instead of uh, boot camp. And so I don't get any credit for that.
0: Yeah, but you're in the top three. Hello, all right. So anyway, just thought I would share that. I thought that was is pretty cool. Is Data
1: Scientist a real thing? <laughs> it's on the list. <laughs> of course it's a real thing. Okay. <laughs> what are we doing today? So that is an excellent segue into the topic today mm-hmm. because between the two of us, what well, we haven't added up yet, but we have been jointly a faculty member for, we're chasing down half a century. If you put the two of us together, I'm in my twenty fourth year
0: yeah so we're on the we we crossed over man because i'm i'm in my 29th year wow you are old is that correct 29th no, because yeah. you were like a high school teacher or something i know i know i'm just i'm just old and i was a high school teacher when well, i was young
1: forgive us listeners we're not very good with numbers as you've figured no. out from prior no. episodes but let's just say fifty years. Yeah, it's more than between 20 the for two sure. of us of being a faculty, and yeah. of course we were postdocs before that, and grad students before that, and undergrads before that. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is looking over our our joint experience. What advice do we have for grad students who are coming up through the system? And, you know, through the focus of the the podcast is it's quantitatively oriented. And so grad students who are focused on quant training, uh, data scientist, statistician, and so on. I hear the air quotes. Every time you say data scientist, I hear air quotes. (laughs) I just, I don't think it's a real thing. But also any other grad student, because Greg and I work extensively with grad students outside of direct quantitative realm who come through classes who are in substantive areas in psychology, public health, education. Today is just we don't have a strong uh, agenda or outline. We never do if you've listened to episodes before this. Um, but we're just going to kind of go back and forth on if a grad student is in our office or we're out to lunch talking to a group of, of students, what are some recommendations we have? What are, what are things we've seen come up before and uh, heading off problems in the future? And how can you most efficiently use your time to become a data science statistician faculty
0: member who drives a cab? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, you should start. I, I You're on a roll, man. Uh, <laughs> Throw I, a dart at your list. I was kind of hoping,
1: that implies I have a
0: list. I I was kind
1: of hoping that we do take turns and then... you mean, I say say something of
0: substance and then you trash it. And and I say something of substance and you trash it like that.
1: Uh, You know, it's interesting. That's how Bauer and I uh, work. Yeah, is he does all the work and I criticize it. I'll start with an odd one. So we have established, unambiguously, that I'm a hypocrite. All right. People in my family know I'm a hypocrite. People who work in my lab know I'm a hypocrite and listeners who have hit this point in the podcast also know that i'm a hypocrite and so i will just start right out of the gates by establishing that Mm -hmm. one of the things that i recommend to students and my own students um, is deeply hypocritical and i embrace that i think you should aspire to get a b in your classes All right, maybe a B plus if you want, but aspire to get a B in your classes. And the hypocrisy is that we selected you, among other criteria, but we selected you to come to the graduate program because you're exceptional students and you study and you stay up late and you get A's on tests and you get A's on final projects and you had a high GPA, you studied for your GRE and you have GRE scores. And I welcome you to the program. And the very first thing that I say is now stop it. Stop studying Mm -hmm. to get an A. And here's my rationale. I'm not anti-A. I I won't advocate
0: against an A. But (laughs) You won't hold an A against people who get an A. I didn't say that. (laughs)
1: Okay. The skill set that gets a lot of students into graduate school is not necessarily the same skill set that allows you to excel in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And classes are, of course, a critical fundamental component of your foundational training, especially in the first and second year. But there are so many other things that students need to be doing. They need to be sitting in on research group projects. They need to start working with their advisor on even a tiny little project. Get get going on research Um, Get involved, get to know your your, uh, class cohort, and talk about ideas, and read manuscripts that you might not otherwise. So in a lot of ways, it's easy to be a student. Um, You're told when the exams are, when the problem sets are due, what to read, and it's easy to stay up until midnight uh, to get the additional uh, investment that you need to, to ace the test and get all A's. First, no one is ever going to ask for your transcript as a graduate student. They just want to know, did you matriculate with a PhD in whatever your field is? Second, every hour that you invest to move beyond, to go from the B plus to the A minus to the A, heaven forbid, to the A plus, are hours that you're not spending doing all of these other things. And so... That is my first recommendation, is get a good, solid B, B+, and use that time to get these other experiences
0: that are just as important as the classwork. Does that mean that you were an A student, and it's hypocrisy, because... The hypocrisy is less about me,
1: and more, we selected you because in part you were an A student, now stop it.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. So I... I value lots of what you say. I really do. And I don't even disagree with it. Um, I will tell you, oh, that concept is so hard for me as a student. Um, I, you know, I came out of undergrad. and, And by the way, I didn't, I did not exactly light things up as an undergrad. I did okay. You know, I did all right. But Um, For those who are listening, I got kicked out of the honors program in college. Uh, Well,
1: and if you listen to the initial episode, he changed from being a medical doctor in education (laughs) because he didn't want to walk up a hill in the rain.
0: It's it's totally legitimate, Um, but whatever. Are you done? For now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, when I was in grad school, I, I went back to sort of my high school mentality because... You know, if I, if I got an A-minus in anything, I would feel like a failure. So it was hard for me to shake that when I got to grad school. But, but I'll tell you my strategy when I went to grad school, and we'll see how it fits with yours. So I took a lot of my classes two and three times, and the, the reason is I knew at some point pretty early that I wanted to be a faculty member. That It just became clear that that's, that was the right blend of things for me since I had didn't walk up the hill to become a physician. So I took the class the first time, and I got the grade. And then I decided I better take the class a second time because unlike everybody else in these classes they had to be able to do regression at the end of the class. I had to be able to do regression, teach regression, and make regression better for all of humankind. And the pressure that I felt taking that class, most of which were service classes, the pressure I felt was absolutely insane. So the first one I got the grade, um, and in many cases understood stuff, but I sat back through there and I had separate notebooks or even some classes like I did multivariate three times um, because the first time I basically did all the math and got a grade for being able to do all the math. But then afterwards, I started saying, okay, now how would I explain this? Because I sure as hell wouldn't explain it the way that was just explained to me. And I, my second notebook, and in some cases my third notebook, I'm, I make a lot of notes to myself that put another example here, do this. And uh, so that that's what worked for me, specifically because I had this course trajectory. But but ooh, it would have been so hard for me to just, you know, to and go for the B. And Not that's go for my B. point
1: is yes, and your strategy worked. Um, I can see the state uh, university cinder blocks in the background of your uh, uh, video image, and you can see the state (laughs) university cinder blocks in the back of my video. But we've arrived. We've (laughs) arrived. Um, But what's nice about our cinder blocks is they seal in the asbestos. So they actually
0: serve Uh several functions. Are you recording in the mesothelioma (laughs) suite today?
1: That was booked.
0: (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Um, So I'm going to say one more thing about your, about, you said something that I liked a lot. Um, Oh, crud, we recorded that, didn't we? You said something that I liked a lot. Right. Um, So think about the European model. And the European model for getting an advanced degree is, is typically very different from the way we do things. You get your coursework and training done... Pretty early on. In fact, you do a lot of it as an undergrad because, in fact, even in high school, you've already declared in many countries what direction you intend to go. College serves a function that in many cases overlaps with what we do as a master's degree. So when you're in a doctoral program in in many of the European programs you're just doing research and you are on your own and you have to figure out what you need to learn. You need to go learn it yourself. You need to get involved in research. It is so self-directed. The concept of a grade and even in many cases, the concept of courses is very foreign, right? You might f- whatever university you might, be, yeah, you might say, oh, there's a class over there in the in the math program. I think I'm going to go sit in, but that's really just for the edification of, uh, of yourself and moving forward. So So I like the spirit of what you say in the sense that it creates time for you to do other things. And and it aligns with some of the ways that other people uh, do things elsewhere. That's a good one. Um, Okay, I'm going to throw something out there. You ready? Mm, Yeah, you already said this one on my list. So I'm going to cross that off, believe it or not. I mean, you said it in a very Patrick kind of way, but that's fine. Uh, I know you can't help it. So this is with regard to research. And I obviously we want students to get involved in research, do lots of things. I happen to think that research is at least as much about the technical aspects as it is about the communication of what it is you're doing. And some people get really caught up in the simulation or some people get really caught up in the mathematics of things. And those are really important skills to have. We couldn't do what we do without those things. But if you can't communicate what you're doing, I think that there's you have a problem in whatever field you go into after your degree so one of the things i like to tell my students is to identify what i call um, aspirational authors and aspirational authors are people who do a really good job of balancing technical with didactic Um, and it can be it can be a whole article that's intended to be didactic or it can be an extremely technical article but that someone who weaves in really nice didactic thread to make sure that they're pulling as many people in as possible. Um, at the risk of saying something nice about you, you are one of those people that I, I very easily identify as someone who is a, an aspirational author. Um, I think Ken Bolin does an outstanding job. You work with Ken. He's just very, very clear, cognizant of the reader. Um, technical writing is a total art. And you are outstanding at it. Ken is outstanding at it. A number of other people are good at it. And I want my students to read what it's like to be able to communicate clearly because that's our goal. It doesn't matter if they're writing about something that we're not interested in. Um, it matters, you know, the craft of writing. So you're, uh, you're good and I want the students to be able to do that.
1: I do have that recorded that you said something nice and I appreciate that. Um, no, I really do. As I don't think about myself in that way, I just kind of write and and kind of move on and then write and move on. And so I very much appreciate the the compliment because I do very similar as I have
0: students read your work, uh, Bauer's work,
1: Boland's work.
0: You're <laughs> <clears throat> such a liar. You're such a liar. But thank you. That was so kind of you to be sensitive enough to feel the need to reciprocate. Go ahead. So I heard you say Bauer. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: I agree completely. And um, I aspire, I myself aspire toward the Bolans of the world. And the only thing that's really stood between me and that are 80 IQ points. But, you know, I admire the aspirational aspect of it. And so I agree. It's, it's, writing does not come naturally. You have to, you have to work at it. And, and Part of, uh, uh, I I was very, very fortunate to work with two senior people when I was in grad school. Lori Chasson was kind of my overall graduate advisor in clinical. And then I was very fortunate to work with Steve West, and he chaired my dissertation committee. And he would spend hours with my papers and give detailed feedback on it. And it wasn't whether to use a semicolon or start a sentence with but... But it was really this notion of how do you write? And I remember once we had almost a half hour meeting. I had opened a paper with let X be an N by P data matrix. And we had a 30 minute conversation about how horrible an opening that is to a paper. But I do agree Mm -hmm. is pick somebody who you like. And different people will have different people who they like. Right? And, and pick somebody who is, is, has a voice that you like and, and you want to emulate and practice in that way. I think that's a wonderful idea.
0: And good writers will tailor it even to different journals. right? Mm. If, you, if we played a game where I covered up the journal name and handed you a paper, with a good writer you could tell you know, what journal did that was written for. And 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 I think that's sort of like the the culminating skill, not just being a good writer, but being a good writer for each specific uh, outlet.
1: Yep, I agree completely. Is mine is a little in my own writing, it's a little less journal specific and a little more like if I only gave you text and nothing else, you could mm-hmm. sort with a hundred percent accuracy my peer-reviewed journal articles and my book chapters. Mm -hmm. Because my book chapters, I'm much more comfortable in being more colloquial, uh, you know, kind of conversational style, you know, starting things with, well, you might think that this would Mm -hmm. lead. And then in journal articles, I'm I'm a little bit more formal. Although, as you know, in my papers, not a whole lot formal. Um, And I like
0: that. I, I like that. It's very approachable as a style.
1: But it can also go to a fault is this has come up in other conversations. But one of the favorite reviews I got of my work was not very long ago from Psych Methods. And the line was, this is the paper Agatha Christie would have written had she been a quantitative psychologist. (laughs) And I laughed out loud when I read it. it, And then I was like, yeah, no, they're right.
0: Yeah, but that's exactly right. Growth modeling on the Orient Express. (laughs) So you... Totally set that up. Um, okay, all right, your turn. So I'll go back to Steve
1: West, and um, mm-hmm. it was something that he told me when I was a grad student that I, with absolutely no basis at all, um, rejected at the time. Mm-hmm. There are actually a string of things of you know that that senior advisors have told me that I've been like, oh, that's not true, that can't be right, and then like ten years later. You know, you say, oh, okay, I see what they were saying. And and Steve got this absolutely right the first time. And it was this notion of set aside quality time out of a day to think. So first identify when is your best time, right? Some of us are morning people. Some of us are are, are night, you know, so kind of identify when your best time is. And he really encouraged me to, whatever it might be, go for a walk, go for a run, you know, just sit on your own. But, but to, to set aside dedicated, high-quality time to think and be creative. And I was so dismissive at the time because I equated working more with good work. And at the time, I was in grad school, I was working 12-hour days and it wasn't until years later that I, I realized, you know, I like trail running out in the woods. And some of the best thinking that I do, now it's all a within-between person, right? It's my best thinking for me, is sitting on a log in the woods and thinking about something that Bolin and I argued about or thinking about something I heard on NPR and trying to puzzle through. So my recommendation is actually one that I'll plagiarize from Steve West, which is cut out high-quality time to be thoughtful and creative.
0: That's very nice. I. Um, so your time is the, is the log in the woods? Yeah. Or the run? Yeah, yeah that's it. For me, it's always going to be in the morning. And... I, you know, you know. Sometimes I think I reconcile this for myself when I, one voice says, you know, you haven't worked on that presentation that you need to do, and then another voice says, yeah, but you've been thinking about it a lot, and the thinking that you do really is, um, really is working on it. And I, I get my my best thinking done in two places. One is in a in a chair at McDonald's. Uh, I. <laughs> I just I go there early in the morning because I'm a, I'm an early morning guy, um, so I might be sitting in an armchair in McDonald's at 5:45 in the morning, uh, thinking about stuff, working on stuff. I'm I'm high functioning in the morning, um, and then the other time is on my commute. Yeah, so my my commute is is uh, well let's just say I carve some time out of each day to do a big a nice block of thinking, mm-hmm. and sometimes. I have more time to do thinking, and sometimes I don't. So this this would not be your thinking time, I'm guessing.
1: No, I I sit on a log and think about two things. is like puzzling Mm -hmm. through some idea I have and also wondering where the hell I am and how the hell I'm going to get back home.
0: (laughs) We found him out here. I get get lost a lot. (laughs) How long is your commute, by the way? If it's...
1: Normal traffic, maybe eight minutes, but on a heavy day, it can be as much as nine.
0: Okay, what? What I'm hearing is that your commute does not involve peeing in a Snapple bottle.
1: <laughs> I didn't say that either.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh. That's right. You're not because a lot I have a, to. I know. You're making a <laughs> lot of assumptions. It's because I want to. There's a difference today. between having to and wanting to. All right. Um, all right. Is it? Is it? Oh, right. So we just... Yes. Yeah, it's your I turn. need to segue from Steve West and Snapple being. Um, <laughs> <laughs> here I go. Uh, this is something that I will tell my students who are flirting with going into academia. And I will say a lot of them are... Hesitant, And I don't think it's hesitant necessarily because, uh, you know, because they've seen something. In fact, they see people who are very joyful in that particular job, but they they can sense the magnitude of it. And for those people uh, listening, for that person listening uh, who's not in academia, um, it is there's a lot going on in academia. There's a there's a really nice quote, which I will certainly mangle. Um, but it's something like academia is a great gig. Um, you you only usually work half days, and it's totally flexible. Sometimes you work the first twelve hours, sometimes you work the last twelve <laughs> hours. Um, <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. So we work. Um, you know, we work a fair amount, but but it's a very joyful kind of job. And my students, my students worry. They say things like, "I, d- I don't know if if I'd be able to figure it out. I don't know if I'd be successful." And one of the this is one of my classic sort of inspirational talks. I say, all right, close your eyes. And I want you to think about the best professor you've ever had. Right? Think about how inspirational that person was and what a what a joy it was to attend his or her class and or whatever that person did for you, yada yada yada. Okay, have you thought about that particular person? Now get rid of that thought entirely. Think about the worst professor you've ever had. I mean, God awful. The classes were disorganized. The person didn't communicate very well, wasn't particularly fair, always scattered. Whatever it was that made that person the absolute worst professor, that person figured out how to be a professor. So if that person figured out how to be a professor, why can't you figure out how to be a professor. So think about not where the highest bar is you have ever seen. Think about where the lowest bar is. And you know you can do better than that. And it usually gets a little chuckle out of the people, but um, but they, they can always name the worst <laughs> professor. Right. I ask them not to, right? But they, they know who that person is. And I go, look, look, people figure this out. You can figure this out too. Um, anyway, so I don't know if that resonates with you at all or not.
1: Yeah, I... I always find it funny. Um, This actually happens to my wife more than it happens to me. My wife is also a faculty member. Um, But it's happened to me as well, where people will come, students will come, and they don't even realize, I think, what they're saying. But they say, well, I don't want to go into academia. And, you know, my response is... You know, of course, I mean it's there are a huge number of jobs in these kinds of fields and, and you can work in a whole variety of things that are not a, a tenure track professor. But I am curious, you know, well, why not? I mean, you're you know, we in a nutshell, a faculty member is paid to create knowledge and tell people about it. And that's a pretty good gig, you know, as I I, I love my day job. And so I'm curious, it's like, well, why not? And they'll say things to me like, well, you know, I want to be committed to my family. I I want to be a good spouse. I I want to be a good father. Um, You know, I want to be available to my friends. And what always makes me laugh is they're telling me who, you know, I'm a husband and a father. And I would like to think a friend. And they're really telling me that they don't want to be me. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and it's like, I mean, you might be willing to be a horrible father, you know, but that's, you know, it's more important to me than uh-huh. it is to you. And um, If I'm in a playful mood, I will point that out to them. Mm-hmm. But often
0: I will just say, well, that's one one perspective on the field. You know, there was, I remember a fear that I had in graduate school, and that was the idea that I would constantly have to be coming up with something new, new ideas or whatever. I didn't, as a brand new grad student, that, that was so daunting to me. And uh, what I realized after a very short time was that the problem isn't that. The problem is you can't turn the ideas off. Mm-hmm. Um, once you start getting immersed in a literature, you see interesting problems everywhere. And I, I kept a list. I, you know, Back in the olden days, I had a, a, a manila folder it was called it said on an idea file and anytime I got an idea I would flesh it out as much as I could put it on a piece of paper and stick it in that folder and and I and that folder grew and grew and grew and the really cool thing about it was I would go back to that folder and realize wow there are some spectacularly dumb ideas <laughs> in here <laughs> but that's so healthy it's so healthy that you you know it seems like a good idea and then you grow and you realize okay maybe that doesn't need to be done or I I already can see a solution, and that's not that big a deal. But uh, yeah, the the real problem in the end is just I, I get so giddy about all of these ideas. I, I you've been in my office before. I have um, important things written on the on the board next to my desk. Um, all these all these great ideas, things that inspire me every time I look at it. Anyway, I just I, I can't wait to do them. I'm giddy. So that I and I, and I hope that our students experience that early on in yeah. their program that in fact they can't they can't not think of ideas.
1: Maybe just a segue to another point is one of the challenges in the face of what you just described is picking off something that is manageable and discrete and can be something done about it because all the ideas also can be overwhelming. And it's very hard to think about, well, where do you start? How do you contribute? I'm not thinking about, well, how would these models behave with missing data or with categorical data or with non-normal data, or, you know, a hundred other things. Yeah, I, I think there's a. It, it's a double-edged sword. Is It's great fun to be, you know, paddling in the swimming pool of ideas, but you also have to fish one out and do something with it. So that's just an addendum to yours. Actually, kind of related to that. I'll go to the next one on my list. And that is something I wish I had learned early, early on. And I'm not actually convinced that I I have yet to learn it. Uh, Don't chase bad money with good. And what I mean by that is I have long struggled with knowing when a project just isn't working and to let it go and turn to something else. And, you know, I have a very brute force kind of approach to everything that I do Um, and it's just if I hit it harder if I put in more hours if I talk louder that somehow that will overcome the problem and you know there are times where you have to take a paper out back and just hit it with a shovel and just (laughs) move on to the next one Um, not all ideas work you know sometimes co-authors flake out And this actually happens to me more often than not. You just get kind of bored with a topic and you've figured it out, but you don't want to put in the, you know, 50 hours to tell somebody else about it. But for a lot of years, I get focused on the time that I've already put into it and am not thinking about the time that is left to try to make it into something that's of any interest to anybody. And so you, you look at the hundred hours you've invested in a project and you just can't bear to have nothing come of that. And so you think, well, I'm going to put in another 50 hours to get this meh kind of paper out of it. I wish somebody taught me earlier on. Ah, I take that back. A lot of people taught me and I ignored it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is I wish I had better appreciated early on. Those hundred hours are gone. Those 50 hours are yours to do anything you want with and don't apply them to something that's going to lead to, you know, just a paper that's eh, okay when you could invest it in something you're more excited about or that has a better chance for survival.
0: Yeah, it is a sunk cost, I believe is the term. Um, but I, I want to qualify something that you said. Uh, where you said something about you're worried that you're not going to get something out of it. Um, And you did get something out of it. And you hit it in an earlier point that you made. You, You got learning out of it. And I don't mean the wisdom not to complete the project. I mean you you learned why you don't want to complete the project and and maybe the answer is because you can already see your way to an answer and you don't want to invest the time to enlighten everybody else it may be that mentally you're four projects down the road now it could be a variety of things but that gets at the heart of why we do everything in this job we don't do everything in this job for a publication we don't do everything in this job for a presentation those help pay the bills um we do everything in this job to to always be learning. And that is the reason I, I wouldn't choose another job over this. I am always, always learning. I, if I, if I have a successful year, then I look back and say, last year, I thought I knew stuff, but I didn't really know stuff last year. This is the year that I know stuff. Um, and that's what makes this job great that, you know, I've had some (laughs) off years. Um, we always have some off years or years that we've got other things going on, but but for the most part, I look at each year and I say, e- even if I haven't accomplished a lot by, by the measure of a Vita, I understand things so much better at the end of most years. And I consider that a win. And I consider that a win, with, you know, even when I have to take the project out uh, behind the house with a shovel or when Reviewer 2 takes my project out behind <laughs> the house with a shovel, um, we learn things. And that's what makes us so great, I would say.
1: Excellent addendum. I agree completely.
0: All right. So is it is it you or is it me? You. Oh, crud. Um, okay. I would say, so I've served on many search committees uh, for faculty positions, chaired a lot of search committees. Um, what I really like students to do is to take a look at the CVs of people who are just graduating when possible. Um, sometimes you can do that very easily because people have taken faculty positions and they have their brand new shiny CV posted to the website of their new university Other times it takes a little bit more work in my own institution when we're hiring for academic positions, I absolutely want to have students serving on the search committee. I think it is such an education to see what people are doing who are out there on the market who are highly competitive. It's good to have a barometer that's not just what your advisor is telling you that you can't get through your thick skull, but when you see people out there doing things. And that, that's whether you're applying for an academic position, applying for an industry position. If you can get a sense of where the bar is there, I consider that to be tremendously valuable in terms of the quantity of achievement, the quality of achievement. And then what I would also say is the coherence of things. Um, there's a Vita that I don't want to see. And that Vita is a person who has been fourth author on 18 things. I don't want to see that Vita. Um, That person does not have tremendous coherence. They have a lot of experiences, but they don't have tremendous coherence and expertise. Uh, I want to see if a person is a multi-level modeler. I want to see a lot of projects around multi-level modeling. Um, If that person does computer adaptive test testing. I want to see stuff around around that. I just I don't want to see this whole collection of things. I don't want to see a vita that anyone would ever use the word eclectic to describe. Um, when you're older, you can do whatever you want, right? You can. You, but but when you're younger, I think it's really important to have a nice coherent set of things. And looking at what successful uh, other young or whatever we call them now emerging scholars are doing, I think is a is a nice way to get that feel.
1: I think that's a. Uh, uh... A great recommendation, and and one that you know, it's like back in the eighties, they did those Scared Straight, where they would take the kids to prison, you know, and show what what life is like. My
0: shoes. My shoes.
1: <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like that because you've got to know what you're facing and and know who the competition is, right? Because uh-huh. that literally is what we're dealing with, and my students know. I don't like to be surprised and I don't like to surprise people. And if you're even, you know, a couple of years out from going on the job market, whatever that field might be, whether you're going into industry or academia or into a postdoc position, is you should know who your competition is. And um, so that you're not surprised when it's too late. Right. It, I always, I, I joke with junior people who are under tenure review, like they've submitted their tenure packet. And, and this young guy I was talking to us. he said, Oh, I'm so anxious. And I'm like, why? It's too late to be anxious. You should have been
0: anxious two years ago. <laughs> so you've, <laughs> you're, you're quite the motivational speaker. <laughs> Well, dude. I show the same degree yeah. of empathy
1: where people are nervous, uh-huh. you know, when in turbulence on an airplane. I'm like, yeah. dude, yeah. it's a dollar short and a day late, man. You <laughs> might as well order another drink. Is be anxious when you can do something about it. And uh-huh. so, you know, I, I totally agree. And, mm-hmm. and it is it is frustrating. So my dad was a high school teacher and then moved into public school administration. And, you know, he would talk about, how, how Not just academia But just life in general Is they constantly Are moving the goalposts On you mm-hmm. Is when he uh, uh, You know Was a, a young man Almost everybody Had a high school Uh, Degree, And if you wanted to distinguish yourself, you went to college. That was the point of distinction. And so we went to college. But then more and more people had college degrees. So you got a master's. Well, then master's were falling out of the tree. And so you got a PhD and now a postdoc. Well, now the field is going where you have multiple postdocs, you know, in some uh, uh, disciplines. And, you know, he would kind of shake his head and he'd say... You know, you move the ball down the field and then you huddle up and you go up to the line and, and the goalposts are 20 yards farther down than they were when you went into the huddle. And so knowing that, I think, is a really wonderful uh, thing to do is to know what the expectations are and, and who your you know peers are, who you're going to be uh, uh, vying for for these limited number of positions that are out
0: there. And it, it's really healthy for us, too, as more senior people because I look at the Vitas of people coming out and I, I don't know how I ever got a a job, an interview, whatever. It's just amazing what people are doing.
1: Yeah. Uh, We, we look at CVs now that are stronger than when I was tenured and, you know, maybe that's more about me than the field, but um, (laughs) you know, it, it just keeps going and going and going. So I think that's a, I think that's a, a great recommendation. Um, all right, so for me, I've got like one bigger one that has a couple of sub ones that I'll slip in. So I'm, I'm gonna be sneaky and do a couple at once, okay. is this one sounds uh, more antisocial than it actually is. <laughs> and that is, I, I quite literally tell my graduate students to be selfish. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is not like push the other person out of the way. And it's like intellectual hedonism, right? That's what I always think about. It's just like like none of us are brave enough to be true, like Bacchanalian hedonists, but we can be intellectual hedonists. And we do what we like, and we try to not do what we don't like. I'm talking about being selfish, and we are faced with a plethora of opportunities. And I'm using air quotes and opportunities Uh, If you're a graduate student and you know factor analysis and a a faculty member will say, oh, you know, Joe, I've got this great opportunity for you. I will give you an 11th authorship Mm -hmm. if you do this EFA for us. And you're like, wow, what what a great offer that is. I, I encourage my students to ask myself, themselves, excuse me, I encourage my students to ask themselves, uh, how am I going to benefit from this? And again, I don't mean it in a hedonistic Machiavellian kind of way. I mean it in, how is this going to move you forward in something that you're going to learn or in something that you're going to, uh, an experience that you're going to get or maybe a group of people who you are going to meet. And you need especially as you become more advanced in your graduate studies, to learn how to say no and to begin to close doors, right? One thing I talk to students about, it's like, oh, I want to keep all my doors open. And it's like, well, that works great as a first year, you know, and maybe a second year. Third year, you're going to need to swing one of those closed. Fourth and fifth year, you're going to need to swing two or three or more of those closed. When presented with an opportunity, think to yourself, how will I benefit from this and use that as a guide as to whether to get involved in a new project or do a new opportunity or not
0: um so I'm still just a tiny bit stuck on the fact that you you used hedonistic bacchanalian plethora and Machiavellian in the same like paragraph it might have been two paragraphs uh, <gasps> that's that's somebody has a word a day calendar <laughs> um wow uh yeah yeah I, I agree with the but Notice um, I'm
1: gonna interrupt briefly
0: yeah those
1: were not four independent words so I'm 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 referencing Bacchus and Machiavelli and I mean I think this reflects and hedonism and and hedonism I think this reflects more poorly on me than like actual vocab for the SAT
0: so did you did you type hedonism and then right click on it while we were t-
1: <laughs> while we were talking? It's actually control F seven in control Word F7. and it just pops okay. all these great things up.
0: <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Um, you are a plethora of information. Yeah. So I um so I'll tell you I'll tell you a funny story that wasn't as a grad student, but it was as a faculty member. When I started a new faculty position, um, I did not know what the heck I was doing. I really didn't. I didn't know what counted, what was um, important for success and and the institution, as many institutions are, they were not clear really about what the standards were for success and promotion and tenure. It's a very, it's when the bar is latent, it's really hard to know how high to jump, <laughs> right? So, I um um a fac- a senior faculty member came to my office and said, "Well, you're fairly new here, and so I thought it would be a good idea if you got some mentoring." And that sounded good to me. I'm a brand new assistant professor. And she said, I have some data and I need a MANOVA. And so so I thought, okay. <laughs> and so she gave me data. I did a MANOVA. I gave it back to her. I wrote up an explanation. And I can I can see her as clear as if it had been yesterday. She said thanks. She turned away and walked out my office. And then she turned and looked back at me and she goes congratulations you've been mentored kid (laughs) and that was it and then she walked off into the sunset and i thought okay i guess that was it you know and it turned into some third authorship or fourth authorship but but that sort of uh, that fed into uh what you're describing something that i should have known earlier on now there's always that issue of you know i want to play nice with the other people i want to fit in i want to be helpful and all of that stuff um but to your point, what's the best use of your time, especially at a time when you need to be gelling uh, as a scholar and you should be gelling yeah. around your own ideas as much as possible? So, are, are we still on like you said it was like a 19 part one with sub B I I I? I'm or out. Are we still in I'm, your st- really? I'm done. Oh.
1: <laughs> no, you're Selfishly, not. Selfishly, I have nothing more okay. to gain from this, so I'm going to stop.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to take a sip of Snapple and then I'm going to give you my... I hope you is, grabbed the right... I just right, opened it.
1: I, I hope <laughs> I, you grabbed the right bottle, buddy. I,
0: did you hear the... Pfft I, I, open, I did as not. As I opened it? Oh, okay. What is
1: that, lemon oh. lime? Oh.
0: <laughs> it's warm. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I would say... Mm, I, I know that you're going to have... You got to have at least one more. I... you. I know your lists. You, there's got to be something in the corner of a post-it yeah, that you're concerned Yeah, I, I got a couple of quickies. <laughs> All right, I, let me let me stick this one in, and then you can rattle off the rest of your of your list. All and, right. and honestly, I could go on a long time too, and that's just because of you the fact that you and I have been doing this for well over ten years. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so this, this and then another ten, and then, and then... another ten, and <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So um. Go to conferences. It sounds simple. Go to conferences. Yeah. You got to see what other people are doing. You got to listen to what they're doing. You got to calibrate yourself and understand what, what are the ideas uh, out there. Who are the people who are out there? It is so, wh- what I used to call it when I was much younger, when there wasn't an inner the interwebs. Um, I used to call it badging, where I would walk down the hall and look at people's names as I'd pass through the hotel. And I'd read people's names and I on their badges and I'd go, Oh, that's her? Oh, that's him? That because you didn't have their their presence constantly, you know, constantly seeing them on social media. But then you would go hear these people talk, right? You would hear you would hear these eminent scholars speak, you would see what their graduate students are working on. You would get to know those people. And I don't mean ingratiate yourself in some sycophantic way. Ooh, that's a big word. That just came okay. Um, you might want to write that one down. And control F seven, okay. whatever, so, whatever that was. Wait, that um, was
1: Way that was W A Y.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, uh, but but actually, meeting the students who are presenting is a great thing to do. It's nice if you can go meet the scholars and talk to them about their papers and all of that. That's a that's a very nice thing to do. But actually meeting the generation that you're going to be a part of is such a cool thing. You know, you go to a conference a couple years in a row, three years in a row, and you're seeing the same people in the different sessions. I remember you last year. Those are the people that you're going to be encountering for the next 30, 40 years, 50, 60 years of your of your interminable career. Um, so get to know those people. Uh, I think that's a it's a wonderful thing. I know so many people now that I remember as graduate students presenting in sessions. And it's very cool to see them arc, you know, throughout their career.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, it's one of those things uh, when I first was going, people would say, Oh, you got to go schmooze or you got to go network. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not, it's meeting your peers and it's meeting future colleagues. And I remember going to conferences and coming back with pages of notes you know, for papers I wanted to look up or ideas <laughs> I had, or I completely agree. It's That's, exhilarating, right? It was exciting and, and yeah. it was amazing to like be able to say hi to somebody like Steve Routenbush. Mm-hmm. Also, you just find out that the vast majority, not everybody, but the vast majority of these people are totally cool and they're supportive and you know they want to help is you know there's an odd one here or there who's not pleasant or you know is in the game for other reasons but you know some of the most supportive people I've encountered have been you know some of the most senior who I own their books and I use their computer Mm -hmm. programs and it just shows that they're just people Right? They are. Yeah. um, I strongly agree. So I got two. I'll throw on, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna subclassify them. I promise these won't take long. I'm gonna Mm subclassify them. One is gonna be a grumpy old man, Mm -hmm. and one is gonna be a trite, a totally trite, vacuous one. So I'll start. (laughs) I'll start with my grumpy old man, and then transition to my vacuously trite one. Mm My grumpy old man, and I am serious in this, is you know, take responsibility for yourself and for what you do and what opportunities you have. You chose to go to grad school. You're making an effort to go to grad school, you're making sacrifices to go to grad school. And just take responsibility for that as you make your own opportunities. If you're lucky, you have a good supportive advisor who's going to you know, work with you and to give you, you know, chances to become involved in research and and you know to meet people in the field. You have colleagues in in among your cohort of classmates. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for what happens to you. And don't wait for people to bring you an opportunity to write a paper or to give you an idea to do something. Is you know, this is a job. Graduate school is a job. You're hired in you're paid for it you're working up through the ranks you're learning while you work you get promoted from masters to comps to doctoral candidate and so it's just it's a minor point but take responsibility for making things happen and own the position that you're in
0: i at the risk of being uh the other grumpy old man the waldorf to your statler or whatever order that is um i, I that, that, to me, is one of the most important take-home messages, that you cannot sit around and just wait for opportunities to fall in your lap. Um, this is not – I don't know if you've ever been to one of those Brazilian – like Fogo, the shirascarias, where they bring around food on a stick and they just cut it off at your plate. That's not graduate school generally, right? People aren't just going to bring things to you and ask you what you want. Oh, would you like a different cut of this? No. You go knock on the professor's door and you say, hey, can I talk to you for a few minutes about stuff you're working on um, and if there's, it might be a place for me to work on things. You, this is. There's never going to be another time like this that you have in graduate school where there's so much richness around you. But you have to, as you said, own it. You have to go grab it. Um, it's a, um, it's a magical time that I only appreciate more and more, as I, you know, as I get older, and that I try to create in the program that, um, that we have here at Maryland. But oh my gosh, yeah, own it. Go out and grab it.
1: Thank you, Statler. Actually, I think I'm <laughs> Statler. Really? You can be Waldorf.
0: What is that? What? Which, one's which the one? Which is...
1: one I think that's the. Uh, anyway. Uh-oh. All right, oh. so I just... we can move to um, vacuously trite, and mm-hmm. I'm as serious about this one as I was with the take responsibility, um, mm-hmm. which is you got to take care of yourself, too. I didn't appreciate that when I was in grad school. I equated working with doing well. If I was in front of a computer, mm-hmm. then I was progressing. And if I was not in front of a computer, then I was not progressing. And I had a buddy of mine. He and I were very close friends. And it's funny looking back is we worked on the same project and it would be the end of the day. And he would say, well, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go for a run, eat a little pasta, shower and come back. And I never did that myself. I was like, no, I got to work. I got to be at the computer. I got to do it. And I would hammer away and he'd go for Mm -hmm. a run, eat some spaghetti, take a shower, come back. And then I was always perplexed as to why he'd come back and he'd be like awake and alert and in a good mood and joking. And I was just like this giant pain in the butt, grumpy guy. (laughs) But, you know, go for a walk, go for a run, go for a bike ride, spend time with friends. It's just you know, preserve that bandwidth. It goes back a little bit to, you know, when I raised Steve West's thing earlier of, you know, you, you've got to take care of yourself so that you can do do good work. And I can say this from not a standpoint of hypocrisy as I went for years not doing that. And mm-hmm. um, I think I work better and more efficiently when I actually work less and literally as I speak, so it's closing in on four o'clock, I'm looking out the window, it's 70 degrees out, and um, my mountain bike is in the back of my van. And when we wrap up here, I'm gonna go for a bike ride, head home, make dinner, and then do a little bit more work before bed. And I think that's a really important thing to try to do.
0: Hugely important. This, And the fact that you are doing this now as an active senior is critical. <laughs> Um. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a trite piece of advice at all, and uh, I encourage everybody to to invest in themselves because you know what would be trite would be to say it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. But in fact, you know, keep yourself energized, keep yourself um, keep yourself moving, and and I, I don't really want to take the last point, but but that was the last thing that you had, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the the other thing i think that's really critical to clarify is that waldorf is the short one that's stockier all right and statler is the tall one and so you just you just dissed me a little bit because i'm i'm shorter and stockier didn't you D-
1: did you miss that i mean i thought that was kind of clear
0: whatever yeah I, have I another snapple to have you. Another
1: drink of lemon lime <laughs> Snapple. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah all right. So I think we're tapped out. I, I, don't, I don't think there's another idea in your head. <laughs> uh-huh. You
1: have no idea. Okay, speaking of ideas. Yes. No, I'm going to stop right there. An idea what? is it's been too long, and we're going to wrap okay. up here. So um
0: that's a cliffhanger. That's that a cliffhanger. is a cliffhanger. Yeah,
1: we'll talk about it some other time. Thank okay. you, everyone, for your time. Greg and I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, if this was not useful, maybe it was at least semi-entertaining, and you'll never drink another lemon lime snapple <laughs> in your life.
0: Uh, yeah. All right. I'm Thanks out of very here. much. All right, everybody. Take care. Go ride your bike. All
1: right. Bye bye. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and please leave us a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. This is Quantitude, doing our part for public health by making you wish you were having a colonoscopy instead. Today's episode is brought to you by Propensity Scores, committed to instilling a sense of childlike magic in all causal inference. By the Regression Fairy, bringing you negative variances and correlations greater than one since Gauss and Markov were playing beer pong together. By Greg's wife. Seriously, she'll support anything that gets him off his butt and out of the house. And by the K9 Zap Electric Pet Collar because the directions don't say you can't use it on your graduate students, this is most definitely not NPR.